This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, appearances can be deceiving, the hidden power of modern fairy tales. So over the last, well, I was going to say over the last few weeks, over the last few years, uh, we've talked a lot about fairy tales. um, And uh, I'm just going to be straight with you guys for the first time and the last time in my life. Um, We're not going to stop. Uh, We're going to keep talking about fairy tales (laughs) until the cows come home. And then even after they're home. Um, But most of our efforts have been concentrated on tracing fairy tale origins, um, old tales, folk tales, etc. Now, in this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to be looking at modern, original fairy tales. Um, so, uh, <laughs> when we talk about that, we're not talking about adaptations of old fairy tales, which were written in the modern period. We're looking at completely original fairy tales. Um, and obviously we can't treat with every single modern original fairy tale either, uh, because otherwise we really would be here until the cows came home. Uh, so um, Jules has selected five case studies for us to sort of delve into. Um, and to narrow the field further, we are starting in the 1920s and we're going to go up as far as the 1960s so i guess modern is sort of relative (laughs) yeah i suppose the thing is when i say modern fairy tales i can sometimes be including jane austen which is obviously 200 and more years ago now so um (laughs) yes modern might not be contemporary 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 fairy tales because they are contemporary to a post 20th century Exactly. So, to qualify as a fairy tale for our purposes in this episode, a story has to have at least a few of the elements of the following. So, soft magic or a low magic setup, which can include anthropomorphic animals. So, when we say a low magic, um, in the original definition of low magic, it just meant there were fewer... fantastical elements. It meant that the plot didn't necessarily hinge on the magical elements in the same way that it might do for something like epic fantasy. Um, We also required a fairy tale setting, so i.e. even if if place names are used and it is basically a real place, the sense is that it's Mm. not really taking place in this world. Uh, Also, meditation on some aspect of human nature which many fairy tales do, obviously. So that is a part (laughs) of the whole fairy tale kit and caboodle. Um, And then presentation of aspirational qualities. Now, this is sometimes in a fairy tale and sometimes not. And there's a lot of argument over what an aspirational quality actually is in fairy tale terms, because if you look at things like Russian fairy tales, the things that are considered aspirational in Russian fairy tales are really not very aspirational (laughs) by our standards at all. Um, So... You could argue the same here. Um, So aspirational qualities that will eventually result in happiness or in the reverse, the failure to grasp these qualities resulting in misery. We do have at least one fairy tale here, which was originally described as a fairy tale, which is not a happy story (laughs) at all. 
Um, and finally, themes which speak to the heart, even if they're difficult to conceptualise in words. Yes. So those are our criteria. Okay, so with that, let's dive straight in. Um, and we'll start off with the question of how did there come to be modern fairy tales? Where did they crop up from? Uh, and I think yeah. basically it's a human need to communicate through story is at the core of this. Um, it really isn't strange that we would dip into this vast body of law and archetype when we're trying to display something that doesn't easily translate into words. And I think it is a mixture between consciously doing that and unconsciously doing that without getting too Jungian about it, you know, without evoking um, <laughs> Joseph Campbell yeah. and his lot. Uh, no, no, they might bring Freud with them um, and Roland Barthes. Uh, no. um, yeah, exactly. There is this kind of this core element of communicating certain ideas and how we do that best and how it resonates well. Um, and sometimes people do say, well, I'm going to dip into this law with the knowledge that it exists. But I also think that there is something else, which is that we can also do it unconsciously, uh, perhaps because we've been doing it just for thousands, millions potentially of years, because it speaks to us as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while we're talking about you know fairy tales themselves, we have to consider what Victorians did to the form and how that influenced the creation of modern fairy tales. Um, because the Victorians seemed to manage a dichotomy whereby folk tales and fairy stories were a source of national identity and pride. So you think about, mm -hmm. you know, the whole Brothers Grimm and, you know, we're taking back our German identity, etc. We don't want anything to do with the French versions, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, we had folklorists over here doing the same thing. Um, but at the same time, the idea of actual fairies and any fairy magic had to be minimalised because we were in the age of enlightenment, we were in the age of reason, whereby we had to leave behind these childish things. So they were confined to children's nursery fires and games and stories. Um, and the fairies themselves, as Madeline has mentioned before in other episodes, they, they suddenly stopped being these terrifying beings of elemental power and became cute little Tinkerbell-type creatures. Yeah. <laughs> Though I do feel like... A, I know we use Tinkerbell as a thing, but I think you must also remember that originally no, she's, she's actually... She's, she's, awful, she's, she's yeah. pretty awful. Of all of the fairy kind of versions, I, I feel like Barry was, uh, <laughs> was one of the ones who went, yeah, let's, let's lean a little bit more into that. Yeah. Um, anyway... Don't don't get me started. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, this linking of fairy stories with childhood had a profound effect. So um, if you were writing a book, you could be denigrated um, as having written a fairy tale, which meant that you were basically, if you'd written something that people mm -hmm. took to be, you know, it's a fairy story, it had elements of magic and fantasy, whatever, you were writing for children. And yeah. this was the case right up until the 1970s or so. Um, and it'd yeah. be that it wasn't proper literature, basically, which is possibly why modern fairy tales were sort of quite obliquely presented as stories in which there are these low fantasy elements, which you know, the plot doesn't tend to hinge on them, even if they are there and they're necessary. And they yeah. they bring in that soft magic sense of wonder. 
Um, however, the other effect of linking fairy tales with childhood was to equate them with innocence and more profoundly after World War One, during the height of fairy fever, basically, um, with innocence lost. Yeah. Yes. Um, because if you think about the people who were fighting uh, in the in the First World War, think about what they were raised on. You know, they were raised on these these fairy promises, this idea of of inherent beauty, and most importantly, this sense of nationalism and inherent goodness, and all of these ideals which were so thoroughly put to the test in the First World War. Um, just speaking from a very personal experience, my great-grandfather fought and saw the, some of the worst parts. He was there in the Somme in World War I, um, and he was, he was injured and things like that. And um, when he came back, he, he left Europe in disgust, he was so yeah. disgusted by what he had seen, what he had experienced, the way that people were treating each other and the way that this had all kind of come about, that he just went, I'm literally going to the other side of the world. Um, he just left Europe entirely. Um, and if you think that you've gone before that, this this huge sort of inherited sense of nationalism and pride and stuff like that, to suddenly being faced with this sense of actually everything is sort of terrible um, and we've had these ideas, these ideals ripped away from us. Um, you can understand how the the fairy tale gets caught up with that and how it, it becomes this idea of innocence lost and children lost and childhood lost as well. Yeah, um, and it's something Robert Graves talks about in his uh, autobiographical yeah. account of World War One and Goodbye to All That, and he did very much the same thing after World War One. He was like, yeah, I'm leaving Europe and I'm yeah. not really that sorry about it kind of thing. So I think, you know, your great-grandfather was not alone in that attitude. <laughs> and that I, Anyway, so between 1916 and 1922, and obviously for many years afterwards and before, because we have mm -hmm. to consider the stage productions of Peter Pan, for example, which started in around 1900. But anyway, this very particular period between the beginning of the, the First World War and a few years after it, yeah. when things were really quite dire, quite shit for returning soldiers... Um, there were many theatre productions featuring young protagonists who have marvellous adventures in fairyland before going home to tea. A very, very English-British way of dealing with it. And they were aimed at children. Um, what astounded playwrights such as Seymour Hicks, who was the author of Bluebell in Fairyland, which I think started airing in around 1916, was that despite the play being intended for children and very much being childish material, uh, the audience was around 80% men unaccompanied by wives, sweethearts, or children. And it turns out they were soldiers who'd been fighting in the Great War, and they had come to watch these plays because when the yeah. lights went down, they caught a glimpse of simpler, more innocent, childlike view of the world they had lost. Um, they came basically to cry, to weep in the dark as the bright fairy tale lands and adventures passed on the stage because there was nowhere else that was safe for them to cry after what they'd been through. Um, and they'd all, obviously, as Madeline said, they'd had all their ideals and everything ripped away from them. I mean, yeah. we have to remember that 
a lot of the young men who fought in World War One were taken almost literally out of school. Um, we took the cream of the crop first out of all the universities, and then we took everyone at 18, and then we had a whole bunch of them who were sort of 15 and up. So yeah. they hadn't seen very much of the world. They hadn't. They were and literally they, taken out of childhood. Yeah, they were going for an adventure. A lot of them, that's yeah. the thing you have to remember, that a lot of them were going for an adventure. It was a little, it was a boy's, it was a boy's adventure. It was one of these, these stories, these tales of great bravery, you know, involving all sorts of stuff like that. And that isn't how it, how it actually ended up being. It wasn't, it wasn't one of these stories. Yeah. They lost that and lost friends, I think is the other thing to remember, of course. They lost a lot of friends along the way. Yeah, and of course they came back and it was sort of stiff upper lip, buck up, all the bad stuff's behind you. And, you know, it's not necessarily people saying that to them, but that's how yeah. everybody was raised. Um, and it's a case of, well, no, you've got, you, you've got a, for the first time, you've almost got an intergenerational group of people who were all suffering PTSD at the same time, along with all the yeah. socio-economical stuff that was going along. And it's just, yeah, there's a reason why they kept going back and back and back to see Bluebell in Fairyland. And I think one that was called Peter and the Fairies or Peter and the Elves, which was by Edmund somebody or other. And that was the one that really used to have everybody weeping at the end, particularly the, the young men who went to see it because Peter comes to the conclusion that he doesn't belong with the elves or the fairies and he says goodbye to them at the end and it's kind of like, I mean it's a very obvious metaphor yeah. for saying goodbye to the fantasy part of your childhood and moving into adulthood which you should yeah. be doing happily but they'd had it stolen away from them so this really struck home as something that was an incredibly painful yeah. experience but they kept coming back for this last bright glimpse of everything they'd yeah. lost which, you know, really strikes me <laughs> so anyway there are obviously other examples of how fairy tales absolutely refuse to stay confined to nurseries and children's stories um, the themes refuse to be penned in because they all treat with things we as humans yeah. desperately need yeah absolutely um it, it it is it's kind of there was a, a sort of an attempt i think um to actually make fairy tales accessible for adults um, under the guise of academia. Um, but it was so narrow, and because of academia, I think as well, it, it was it ended up being closed off. Uh, this is, sorry, this is a small aside before we get to the main thing, just because there might be a few people going, oh, hold on a second, but there were these collections, like, you know, Croker's collections and stuff like that, which were not aimed for children. Um, mm. But they were written, or they were received and sort of circulated among academic circles. Um, and the flavour of these tales was also very different. So I'm just mentioning that just in case anyone's going, hold on a second, is that what you're... No, that's not. Um, that's a different aside. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're going to look at a few kind of case studies of times when fairy tales refuse to just be for children <laughs> yeah um, and as with all stories modern fairy tales again we say modern is a relative term yeah but 
Um, modern, not the Victorian fairy tales or anything that came before. They often tell truths we didn't, don't expect, or maybe didn't intend. Yes, um, <laughs> I love it when an author is just suddenly like, "Wait, that's not what I was trying to say," and it's like, "Tough, that's what you said." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to start off with one which uh, I think we actually mentioned in a previous episode. Um, and it might be familiar to a few people. It's uh, The Enchanted April uh, by Elizabeth von Arnhem, um, which, and, and just a little kind of thing here, uh, Jules listened to the audiobook and then she was like, Madeline, Madeline, you've got to listen to this. It just, it's so cosy. <laughs> and I did know the story, but I, I, known it from sort of my youth and hadn't really appreciated it and I was like okay well I'll listen to it as well and it was 100% it felt like going on holiday the just the story it feels like going on holiday so um, let's talk a little bit about it Uh, so it was published in 1922 and the basic premise is that um, there are four women who through one thing or another feel trapped in their lives and in their relationships and they all desperately want a holiday um, or a kind of a breakaway from their current lives and what happens is the opportunity to hire a castle in the Italian Riviera comes up but since uh, one of them cannot afford it on their own all four of the women um, who otherwise don't really know each other decide decide to club together to hire it. So it starts off with these two women who then hire out these two other spaces and end up with these four original strangers. Um, And, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it... It, it starts off you, you, your viewpoint character to start with is uh, Lottie Wilkins who she's a young wife she's married yeah. to a man who is very much trying to climb the ladder socially and business wise he's a bit of a penny pincher and he thinks she's a bit foolish and simple and stupid and she yeah. feels very very trapped and unseen because of that and when she sees yeah. this advert, she just happens to be sitting at the table with someone who goes to the same church as her, Mrs. Arbuthnot, who's a bit older, and sort of says, oh, look at this, isn't it wonderful? Mrs. Arbuthnot's like, well, yes, that, that does sound wonderful, but, you know, it's obviously yeah. beyond us. Until Lottie's like, we could hire it. No, 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 let's do it. This is a brilliant idea. And she's just, there's a lot of sneaking around yeah. to start with and hiding the fact that they're spending their pin money on this holiday from their husbands. Um, and you think, oh my God, this is all going to end in disaster because, you know, this is this is the 1920s, so this can't go, can't possibly go yeah. well. It's, it's going to be a, why are these women hiding, you know, things from their husbands, etc. And, and, and all that jazz. And, uh, and it doesn't end up like that at all. Um, and it, one of the things is that when the other two women, Lottie originally and uh, Rose, Mrs. Abuthnet, um, Rose sort of pities Lottie. And then very quickly, the more time she spends with Lottie, the more she actually starts to really become very close with Lottie. And she, she really cares about her. And by the time they get to Italy together, they are the the dearest of friends. Yeah. Um, but the other two women... 
are not particularly nice, actually. No, but one is Mrs. Fisher, who yes. is, you know, she's she's very much stuck in the past in, in many ways, in the sense of she she has difficulty getting her way around. She's an old widow. Yeah. She's alone. And she just thinks back to the heydays of her youth in Victorian England, where she spent time with the great minds of, of literature, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was also thinking of her husband and stuff like that. And one of the interesting things is that it's not always really happy, but she is so stuck in the past because she doesn't really have anything left of the present, really. Everything yeah. that is was her, it was in the past. And she doesn't feel like she has a present. And so she is just living in the past. And the other one um, is, oh gosh, what's her name? I can only remember her nickname, but she's basically, uh, she's a lady of, yeah. of good family. Um, her nickname yeah. is Scrap. And she's incredibly beautiful. She's so beautiful that no one takes her seriously. All they can see is her beauty. So when she's angry, they just think, oh, how beautifully she expressed herself. <laughs> and it's so annoying for her. And she just, she's fed up of all these men who are basically trying to woo her um, when they can't actually see her. They can't see that she she doesn't feel lovely all the time. She doesn't feel beautiful all the time on the inside. Sometimes she's angry and annoyed and fed up of people. Yeah. And they're just constantly touching her as well. They want to pet her. They want to take care of her. And she feels kind of quite belittled and unseen. Yeah. Um, and they're both quite selfish. Um, and it's just with kindness and with patience and with understanding they both start to change and it's particularly Lottie who just proves to be actually very astute she's got a slight uncanniness about her in that she seems to sort of know things um and yeah she just they they slowly start to change and Miss Fisher um sort of has this alarming moment where she feels like there's something blossoming in her and she she kind of feels youthful again and she's just thinking, no, 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 I'm too old to be feeling that. That's very unsensible. But she kind of comes to this moment of, of actually saying, yes, I, I d will always appreciate the greats and perhaps things will never be quite as good as they were, but actually I want to live now. I still have youth in me. I still have vigour. You know, I, I don't just want to be shut away. Um, I, I actually want to be loved and I want to love in return. Um, and she forms this very, very close kind of relationship with Lottie, who originally she, d to put it frankly, she despised. She would just completely ignore. Yes. She thought Lottie was very airy, fairy and vague and had weird notions like seeing things. I said, I can, Lottie's always saying, I can see it. I can see it happening kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and it, it sort of... Yeah, and it, oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I think it's going somewhere, taking a break from their lives. You'd love to think the holiday away, a break from your life, would solve all your problems, but it kind of does for these four women, just because they go, they surround them, they all sort of drown themselves in the beauty of the, the area and the castle and everything. And because of that they start appreciating things in each other and they kind of appreciate things in their husbands that maybe they they didn't really appreciate before and and it's more sort of letting down your guard so that their husbands can appreciate them as well um th there's a fair bit of plot to get into there which we won't go into because we'd 
recommend yeah, you to it. Yeah, it is a short it, it is honest. a short novella, so um, it's it's worth it. Um, it's very easy. But yeah, it's um it's a really I think the reason the holiday kind of works out is because it gives them breathing space to be better versions of themselves. Yeah, it that's why it sort of solves things. Yeah, it gives them a sense of perspective where then you know they have a sense of perspective of who they are, where they are. They have basically the chance, as you say, to breathe, to stop having to just live day by day, and to actually look at themselves. Um, and to look at those people around them, um, and to enjoy themselves. Uh, and I think that's one of the core things, is that relationships should involve, and any kind of relationship should involve some form of joy. And if you are not giving yourself that joy, if you're not permitting yourself that joy, which is the case with Rose, if you feel you cannot express your joy, as is in the case with Lottie, you know, um, or, or if you are refusing that joy because you feel sort of condescended against, as is the case with Scrap, um, you know, you are not going to actually be able to really appreciate other things, um, particularly if you're just trying to take everything too seriously, if everything is too serious all of the time. Um, and it's, it's beautiful in that way. And... I mean, if we sort of get into the themes, um, you know, I think there's four kind of major themes. And the first one is that we can make our lives smaller by not trying to see other people's perspectives. Yeah. And that seems and when, to be absolutely what happens when they, they go off to this Italian castle, doesn't it? Um, and I think a big part of that is that the Italian castle allows them to see other people's perspectives because they are no longer just living and trapped in a very, very small world where they literally can't afford to consider other people's perspectives because they're desperately just trying to get through their day, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another theme is love of all kinds is what matters. So whether that's love between um, a husband and wife, whether it's love between friends, new friends or old friends, or whether that's sort of like the adopted love, because it almost feels like Lottie almost fulfills a daughterly role for Mrs. Fisher, who's never had any children of her own, doesn't yeah. it, by the end of the book? Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what it feels like. Um, and all of the matter, and, and, and it, it is beautifully put. Um, and the other form of love is, is self-love. You know, one of the big themes I think is it's better to be kind, especially to yourself. Yeah, very definitely. Yeah. It's, it's like Lottie, when she's got this perspective, this pros prospect, sorry, the prospect of going somewhere starts being more open to, I suppose, her inner life with, I don't want to be all metaphysical, but her sort of way of knowing things that everyone else finds quite alarming. Um, but she's kind of like, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll work itself out. I'm writing to my husband to join us because I feel I've been really selfish. It'll work itself out. He'll be his best self here as well. And she's right. Um, and she, it sort of allows her to extend yeah. that kindness. Um, there's one scene, I think it was one that really annoyed you, where Mrs. Fisher decided that a, a drawing room was for her alone. Yeah. And she wouldn't let the others use it. <laughs> That was 
And Lottie just says, oh, that's okay. We didn't know that you'd taken this room. We'll use another one. And Rose is like, we, we shouldn't just let her get away with it. And, and Lottie's like, no, no, no. Give her a couple of weeks in this place and she'll be better. And again, she's right. Yeah. G- give, us a, give us a couple of weeks in this place and she will be inviting us in here. You know, we'll, she'll be asking for us to be yeah. in here. And she's right. And there's something very lovely about that. The idea that you know, if you extend kindness and you refuse to be offended by people's strange little peccadilloes, um, that actually they will stop bristling at you like hedgehogs and they'll uncurl and they will invite you in. And there is an element of truth to that, I think. Yeah. But I, I think it is the fact that the first thing you need to do is extend kindness to yourself. Yes. Otherwise you're not um, equipped to do it to and- anyone else. <laughs> Yes, um, because when you are kinder to yourself, when you are happier, you will be kinder to other people. A happy person, you know, tends to actually want to share that happiness. Whereas a gloomy person will, that gloominess, that sadness, that stress will reflect off of them. Yeah. Um, and so giving yourself a little bit of kindness by and kindness can also come in the form of first of all I'm going to treat myself or kindness can come in the form of I am actually going to be kind to myself and let someone else make me feel better um, even though I don't want to feel better or even though I feel like I shouldn't or etc and I think that kind of ties in with the final theme it's not the final theme of the book but it's one of the main ones we picked up on is do not assume that someone else's opinion of you defines yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. So again, that 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 kindness of well, this person it that's very pre- um, noticeable with Lottie, where she feels that her husband thinks she's quite stupid, and her husband treats her as if he thinks she's quite stupid. But when she says, "Well, no, I just I am what I am, and I'm going to stop giving myself a hard time over that," he starts seeing her as is actually she's got some brilliance to her and I've misjudged her. And so he's kinder yeah. to her in return. <laughs> I wouldn't say he always comes from a position of altruism or anything, but um, he definitely improves with a little bit of, um, with a bit of yeah. prodding in the right direction. Yeah. Doesn't he? He's getting to the point where he, 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 when they originally married, he thought oh, there was something in her and then he, and then he thought that he misjudged. And now that she's happy, he's like, no, I didn't misjudge. It yeah. is there. And, okay, the relationships are very much set in the period that they're set in. Um, so, like, I wouldn't say that reading it now is necessarily relationship goals. But for, for the for the period, it was very advanced. <laughs> it was, actually. Um, and that I think that kind of reflects Von Arnhem's life herself. She... Um, obviously I'm not her biographer so I can't tell you everything but she had quite an interesting life and she was kind of a socialite she was a you know a lady of consequence she was part of the aristocracy and she married she had at least one divorce at least one failed marriage which you know amongst the aristocracy at those that particular time was quite scandalous and unheard of and you get the 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 sense that you know uh, while the Enchanted April is kind of like one of her lightest books that maybe this whole being kind to yourself thing was something that was a hard-worn yeah. lesson for her. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I think it, 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 it just touches on those, you know, 
Um, I, because it is, you know, even though it's it, it is a lighter book, it's it isn't frivolous. It's not a frivolous book. It's not an over the top book. Um, you know, no. its enduring popularity shows that its power to connect the reader with parts of themselves that have been bogged down or neglected, um, you know, lives on. And it, I think that's because it's a quiet book. It's a quiet fairy tale. Yes. It is, as you say, as if you're being offered a holiday. It's like, here you go, here's your break. Here is, here is a 210-page break. Um, to st- step back and consider the beauty of the world and the fact that maybe you've been kind of looking, peering out through dirty glass, as it were. So, in some respects, I'd say that like the the very modern equivalent is a Studio Ghibli kind of. Yeah, it's some definitely. of the Studio Ghibli stuff. It's the finding the joy and the beauty and and the loveliness in very small things in everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. And in other people as well. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, tolerance, kindness, and, you know, love for each other and yourselves. And, you mm-hmm. know, it it sounds like a sweet and frothy thing, but it's actually a really quite deep look at human nature. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, we're moving on to one that... <laughs> it, it's quite a sad story, actually, but... Just a little um, bit. <laughs> This is, uh, but this is the book. This is Bambi, A Life in the Forest by Felix Salton, yeah. um, which was published in 1922. First of all, forget everything you know about the Disney yeah. film. Um, despite the book's huge popularity in America, and it was, it sold in its hundreds of thousands of copies in America, which for a small book, which was considered basically a children's story, it was phenomenal at the time. Um, Disney, as usual, missed the point <laughs> completely. So there's nothing wrong. If you like Bambi, the Disney film, that's fine. It's it's quite a sweet yeah. coming-of-age film. Um, but yeah, it, Disney portrayed an American-set animal story featuring a white-tailed deer in a touching coming-of-age story. The original is a melancholic fairy tale about not belonging ostracism, the dangers of being othered, and finally yes. finding comfort in one's faith. It's a completely <laughs> different story. Um, and this is because uh, Sultan was born in a family of um, Austro-Hungarian Jews who, after the imperial government granted full citizen citizenship rights to Jews, um, immigrated to Vienna. Uh, and Bambi, in the book, is obviously set in Europe. The titular character is one of the smallest European deer, a roe deer. They are notoriously shy and retiring, and they do not roam in great herds. In fact, they tend to live in small family groups or even on their own. Now, Bambi spends much of the book grappling with the reason for his own existence. The world is beautiful, but it is full of danger for him. He does meet and fall in love with... um, I can't say it's Faline. Faline, I think. Faline. Yeah. Yeah. But they never uh, marry, in inverted commas. Um, And he never becomes king of the deer or anything like that. Instead, he just grows older and warier, um, finally living as a solitary male with uh, only old prince as a confidant. Yeah, Bambi's a marginalised creature. Um, He's largely too timid and afraid to force his way into a position of power or belonging in the world. 
and he finds comfort as well as loneliness in solitude. It later becomes clear at the very end of the book, when Bambi is old and grey, that old Prince, the stag who has warned him when hunters have been trying to summon him onto their guns and has done various other things to help him survive, mm -hmm. is is actually a divine being who has guided Bambi through his life. So he's literally the voice of God. Yeah. He hasn't been a real deer the entire time. He's just been someone who's always been walking beside yeah. him. And there's something beautiful, poignant and a little bit disturbing about that. I think it's I think it's the idea that yes, the only person in the end that Bambi, that Sultan himself, could really mm -hmm. count on, uh, was the voice of the Lord inside yes. him. I do find that it quite is. sad. It is quite sad. Um, and the book was burned in its hundreds by the Nazis during yeah. the Second World War because it was condemned as an allegory for the way Jews were othered and treated badly in Europe, which, of course, is what it was. Yeah. So it's, it's, I haven't read it since I was a teenager, so I couldn't give you chapter and verse, but as I recall, it's well worth reading. And if you want something that really captures the flavour of what it was like between the two world wars for the Jewish people in that part of Europe, then... Weirdly enough, this book about a shy yeah. little deer really does it. Okay, uh, now on to uh, the next one, which is definitely... Might surprise a few people. <laughs> um, and that is Animal Farm by George Orwell. It was, it was published in uh, 1945. And uh, it's, it's one of those ones where Orwell was accused of being a communist a few times, or people saying he had communist leanings. And I don't personally know how anyone who could have read Animal Farm could possibly think that George Orwell was a communist. Um, could read that. <laughs> yeah. But, like, Animal Farm is very much the sort of the one where you just go, <laughs> this is, like, it's not even, he's not even trying to, pr it, it, it's not, it's, it's not even disguised. Or, or any of his books, <laughs> in fairness. No. It was originally published as Animal Farm, a fairy tale, and then the publishers eventually made him yeah. drop the subtitle because they felt it was misleading and they changed it to Animal Farm, a satire. And when I say misleading, they were kind of like, we don't like the idea that a fairy tale can be this dark, was basically yes. where that was um, coming from. I... Um, anyway, the basic plot is that uh, there is a farm, which is obviously doing a mixed farming method, considering yes. how many different animals there are on the farm. And the animals kind of call a meeting amongst themselves, and they feel that it is not fair that their labour and their lives are producing food yeah. and money for the humans who own the farm. And the pigs, who are by far the most intelligent animals, um, manage to rile up all the others so that they lead a revolt against the humans that own the farm, and they take over the farm themselves. Um, yeah. As it turns out... And, well, I, I will just also say is that when it sort of starts out, you know, with the, the whole kind of idea is it starts out with this particular old pig, who I think... Is he called Nelson or something Napoleon. like that? I can't remember. Napoleon. Napoleon, that's it. Napoleon. Um, and he is... He's an idealist, and everything he says is very beautiful, um, and it, it it's something which I think resounds well with, you know, the the fairy tale sort of readers because it is this whole idea of of 
ah, this beautiful fairy tale world um, where labor is divided and and goods are divided and everyone is happy and working together and the best version of themselves it's this tone everyone is equal. and everyone is equal yes and so you sort of you read it and you're thinking yeah absolutely this is the, this is the fairy tale world where everyone is is working hard but playing hard and happy and and etc um and so, and it does seem to come very much from this place of what a wonderful what a let us seek this fairy tale out um and so they do but uh, it doesn't go according to plan <laughs> no it doesn't because the farm doesn't run itself so the idea is that everyone chips in with labor and stuff and that the hens get to keep their eggs and, and what have you um but pretty soon things start to go downhill and more resources start flowing towards the pigs at the top of the chain and less down to the other animals um, and it's really quite skillfully done mm-hmm. the way that Orwell has done it, um, where he has animals representing various different things, different parts and echelons of society. Uh, we won't go into that because uh, essentially you could read the book yourself, and we would suggest you do if you haven't. Um, but yeah, again, it's a, it's a short novella. It's very it's an it, easy read. Well, it's a short read. Maybe not necessarily easy, yeah. Um, but um, basically, by the end of the book, um, you have animals that have completely given their lives for this ideal, which has not come or paid off. You have the pigs who are now making deals with other humans. And there's a, the very poignant part at the end of the book where the animals are watching what is clearly some sort of meeting between the pigs and the humans. And they say they looked from the pigs to the men and the men to the pigs, and for a moment they could not tell which was which. So Orwell is commenting, and he's not doing it subtly, very strongly about any kind of um, absolutist mentality, any kind of totalitarianism. Yeah. Um, and this has obviously been a banned book in many countries, very notably Russia and China. Yeah. Can't imagine why. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it is beautifully done and it's very cleverly done. Um, and I think perhaps the most, the thing that sort of makes it work so well is the is that um, it's not a, Uh, sort of an idea of everybody you know there are certain people who are inherently bad or anything like that it is that with the best intentions you know and with the the best intentions and with the right vision there will always be certain people who will take advantage of situations and will you know try and get more power and even if it attracts certain types of people (laughs) Yeah, yes. power attracts the corruptible. Um, because again, it, it wasn't this idea that the pigs were inherently bad. The first Napoleon was seemed to actually be a very good, kind, and well-meaning pig. You know, his ideas and stuff like that. And the pigs were put in a position of sort of more kind of administrative role because of their intelligence. And so they were needed in that role initially. But that role gave them a certain level of power because this power vacuum had been created um, and bit by bit they got greedier and greedier and greedier um, and they were lifted up on the momentum of everyone else's dream and ideal 
of what they wanted. Um, and yeah. it, and it also portrays this idea that you know there are a few few of the animals like the goat who catches on pretty quick and says we're being played for fools. Um, but the, there isn't this sense of well these other animals are idiots. You completely understand and see how they have been put into the system and how they actually have they're only really seeing what it's become when they're once again trapped and it's too late. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously a deliberately political fairy tale that satirizes fairy tale story modes and it's reversed things. So this is the case where the the aspirational qualities are actually not gained or not gained in the right way and misery is the result. Yeah. Um, Orwell was extremely concerned about the rise of communism, having observed how it was used in the events up to the Russian Revolution in 1917 and then in the Stalinist era. Um, I have to say, I don't... There's there's once again been a bit of an upswing in, in some sort of communist rec- rhetoric, mm-hmm not least of which is Marxism, Marxism amongst certain groups and things Mm -hmm. now. Um, And it's being deliberately inserted, and it's being deliberately inserted by outside forces. And this sounds really paranoid coming from me like this. This sounds like reds under the bed mentality. But actually, if you dig into what certain social groups are saying at the moment, and then say, okay, but where where did that come from? Dig a little bit and you'll find out that at least one of them is a trained Marxist and they are trained to put forward this rhetoric and they are doing it very deliberately. Yeah. And the fact is that... Not because they believe in it. Yeah. The fact is that you can literally go onto websites and find these. Sometimes they're bots, Some, uh, but for the most part, actually, it is, you know, these fake identities, these fake profiles on Facebook, on, on various kind of things like that, who will just come in and stir and they are they're trained for it. It's a job. That's what they're doing. Um, and once again, it plays on that, the fairy tale ideal. And I think in that way, George Orwell was right to say this was a fairy tale because, but it's a fairy tale that, that is then faced with reality. It is a fairy tale that says being good, being kind, etc., does not necessarily mean that the world will reward you. Because even if the majority of people are good and kind and well-intentioned, all it takes is a few to make a mistake, and all it takes is for a few to, or one or two to have evil intentions and to pull others up along the way. I think there's a strong element of don't let other people do your thinking yes. for you as well, because this is a direct quote from him. How easily totalitarian propaganda can control the opinions of enlightened people in democratic countries. Um, this is from, you know, he fought in the Spanish Civil War. This is him talking about, oh, I want to say Escaped Catalonia, I think was the book. But again, it's been a while. But I mean, again, this is relevant now. This is something that came up in um, another podcast, obviously not one that's affiliated with us at all. But it was an ex-KEGB guy. And he was saying, yeah, well, what we did was we went and we infiltrated the universities in, you know, Britain and in various places in Europe and in the US and we sold Marxism and communist ideals to the youth who were, you know, they were young, they were full of energy, they wanted to make mm-hmm. the world better, they were full of this fairy tale ideal. Um, and what we did was we got them going and in, and in certain places very successfully to the point where it destabilized government. And then when we managed to actually get in and take over, the first thing they did was they killed all those 
youths who were speaking for Marxism no. communism because they don't actually want that. What they want is a totalitarian regime. But communism is a really, really good way to get everybody on side so you can just march into a country and take it over. And it's hap- it's happening now. It's literally happening now. <laughs> yeah. And for me, one of the big warning signs is, um, which makes me again think back to sort of to Animal Farm is a lot of people talking about the French Revolution like it was a great thing. Yeah. Like Like it was a a wonderful thing. It's like, well, (laughs) perhaps we should... And, you know, I've been part of the jokes, you know, this is like, well, time to get out the guillotine, etc. But the reality is is that there are people who are... And and to be honest, I really shouldn't be. Uh, You know, I've been making guillotine jokes since I was a child. Uh, But the reality is that... The French Revolution changed French history, um, and it started a whole, you know, it it was one of the the dominoes that fell and has shaped what then kind of happened with the World Wars and stuff like that. What happened with Napoleon himself, Um, you know, Napoleon is a result of the French Revolution. Uh, (laughs) and whilst the ideal behind the French Revolution, behind what people were saying, which is we are hungry and this is corrupt, and yes, um, one form of corruption was destroyed and it was replaced with another form. Um, And in the meantime, while all of this was happening and then all the infighting happened, the people who were the ones who were really suffering from the get-go continued to suffer and starve. And that is why Napoleon sort of then yeah, sort of springs up from from all of that, essentially. Um, so it, it's it's this odd kind of thing where there is this ideal, um, and the ideal is based on the fact that there are some bad people in the world now. If we get rid of those bad people, everything will be solved. Um, it is that fairy tale of there is the wicked step mother or there is the wicked witch or whatever if we get rid of them everyone else will be happy and it fails to recognize that more bad people will be born and you can't root them out they they're not easily distinguishable um and actually they can very much be the people beside you or the people who are whispering in your ear or the allies um or your own children etc yeah, um, and a final point, just to really drive this home. Um, when I say don't let other people do your thinking for you, and we've always said, you know, we, we were a literary podcast. We talk about books, but we always say don't let other people do your thinking for you. Mm. Um, question everything, challenge everything. When you get to a state where someone offers you an easy answer and says, I've got the solution, I can end basically end your suffering over this question, because guess what? There's actually no answer to the question. That's why you're suffering for, you know, you're supposed to, sorry, but that is the answer. When someone says, I can just end that for you and solve it, distrust them because they are lying. Yeah. They are, there are no easy solutions. Let's remember that, you know, taking Stalin as an example, he killed far more of his own people through starvation than he ever achieved any success or triumph over his perceived enemies. Yes. And I think you'll find that the same with, with all communist dictators and indeed with many other dictators yes. as well. <laughs> okay, moving on to happier, happier fields. Um, 
The Little White Horse by Elizabeth. I want to say gouge. I've always said gouge, but it might be gouge. So if I'm wrong, I've been saying gouge all my life. And yes. I'm going to say it in this podcast. <laughs> but if I'm wrong, I sincerely apologise. Um, this book was published in 1946, and it won the Carnegie Medal for Children's Literature in the same year, which was quite the achievement when you consider a... Uh, the heavy hitter children's authors that yeah. Elizabeth Gooch was up against that year, including Ina Blyton herself. Um, it's set in 1842, and the premise is that the orphaned 13-year-old girl Maria Mer- Merriweather, her father has died, and it's turned out that they was there was a lot of debt, so everything they owned has had to be sold. So she, her governess, Miss Heliotrope, and her dog, Wiggins, who is a King Charles Spaniel and extremely vain, are sent off to basically Devon to live with yes. her distant cousin, Sir Benjamin Merriweather. And what happens then is just pure magic, because it's one of those, one of the, the themes in the book is that Maria herself is, though she's flawed, she's quite, she's not a beautiful young princess in a fairy tale, even though she's called a princess at various points during the story, we're, we're left in no doubt that yeah. by the standards of the time, she was considered very plain and that she's way too inquisitive, as in she's actually quite nosy. Um, she's also quite vain about yes. her appearance. You know, she really likes her clothing and everything to be done properly. <laughs> so she she has she has flaws, um, but she's also very good at looking at the person behind the exterior. So it's like it starts off with her governess. Her governess is extremely unattractive, but Maria, as a child, looked past the exterior and saw what an amazing person she was and loved her. And then. There's this lovely part at the beginning where um, Miss Heliotrope's thinking about the fact that she's got this job as, as initially as a nanny to Maria Merriweather, whose mother's died in childbirth. She's going to love this child because the child deserves to be loved. But she's she comes in and she, she finds <laughs> the child to be really quite an unattractive um, example of female humanity. <laughs> but she's like... She's like, okay, um, well, I'm going to love the child anyway because the child is motherless and her father's not around and she deserves to be loved. Um, and Maria's like, well, no, she's really trying to love me. Ergo, I can see what a great person she is. And, and sort of because she can see through the exterior, Miss Heliotrope just sort of becomes absolutely devoted to her. And it's kind of a theme through the entire book that Maria will look past people's exteriors, no matter how strange or alarming they are, and see the person underneath which is what yes. makes her such a great ambassador for breaking the curse that is over Moonacre Valley. And it I don't know if you've read it, but it is just the, the most... A long time ago. <laughs> lovely, lovely, beautiful fairy tale. It's so cleverly done. Um, she discovers that she, is, you know, every generation a moon princess comes back. But so far, every single moon princess has failed for the exact same reasons. And... Those reasons are basically pride, vanity, and having the merry weather temper. Yeah. Um, so she's got two things to do. Somehow she needs to form a reconciliation between her, you know, her her gentry relatives, and the men from the dark woods who are also gentry. There's been an intergenerational argument going on with them for the last yeah. five hundred <laughs> years. It's been pretty bad. Um, she also needs to humble her pride and marry somebody who is not, you know, who's somebody who's basically quite plain and ordinary, maybe mm. a bit poor, um, which, you know, comes up later on. 
And what's really interesting about this is that the moon princess before Maria is still in the valley. There's been this huge fall because you know, I don't know many other children's books where they say, oh, one comes back in every generation, but every generation's failed. And they've kept <laughs> the previous generation hanging around <laughs> as kind of like an example. I mean, Maria's nosiness actually comes in into good effect because she realizes that as much as she loves her cousin sir benjamin he's actually there's something not he's very not happy about something um it turns out that no other women have been in his manor house for 20 years and that strikes her as very strange and you know she says do you not like females and he says well not as a general rule but there's something very charming about exceptions to the rule so he's very welcoming to her and miss heliotrope um but She's kind of like, oh my god, we're in a a, a a woman disliking all male household. How what what on earth's gone on? And then later on, she meets a woman who is basically the porteress of the. You get into Moonacre Valley by going through this cave system, driving through the gates, and there is a porteress who opens the gate when people ring. Um, she meets this porteress who turns out to be Love Damonette, who, as it turns out, Maria discovers that actually many sort of 20 years before Sir Benjamin and Loveday had this big love affair and they were about to get married and then they had an argument over something very very foolish but something that was really understandable at the same time and so Loveday went away and she was so angry with Sir Benjamin she married someone else so that he couldn't ever get her back um so and she had a son and then she was widowed but she couldn't get Moonacre out of her head so she went back to live there with her son and Sir Benjamin doesn't know that she's there. Everybody's minding their own business and keeping quiet about the fact that Loveday's back in the valley, the moon princess came back kind of thing. (laughs) And Maria Maria sees that these two people, you know, they're not not fairy tale heroes. You know, they're just people and they've really messed up, but they still really love each other and they cannot quite get over this barrier between them. And the way she sets it up for them to sort of, meet up with each other and finally apologize and say yeah i still love you can we still get married is so beautifully done Uh, not only that her nosiness discovers what exactly has happened um between you know the the denoirs the ones who live in the the dark woods and um the merryweathers and it turns out that you know her ancestor didn't in fact murder one of the denoirs what happened was you know he, he grew tired of life and wickedness and sailed out to sea in a boat and then a little white horse pulled the boat back up to shore. And she manages to demonstrate that to them as well. This is where the little white horse comes in, which yes. is actually a unicorn. <laughs> um, but she also realises that her governess, Miss Heliotrope, um, wasn't able to marry a man many years before because her father didn't approve, because he was an atheist. And... She dis- she makes the discovery that the old parson, who is in Met, basically in Moonacre as well, is in fact the man that Miss Heliotrope had hoped to marry, but they haven't seen each other for 40 years or more. And now and he's a parson. Away a very de- and now he's a parson, yes. He, he actually stopped being an atheist and became a priest. <laughs> um, and then 
she finds a way of very delicately sort of like nudging them together and managing that matchmaking of things as well. Maria has already picked out the man that she wants to marry. <laughs> I love that it, it's kind of like, it's like a version of Emma, but not insidious. <laughs> yeah, she goes in and she realises that there are times when her nosiness is really not very welcome and times when actually being quite delicate with it and working out what people want and need and then being very careful in how you manage it and she manages you know she comes in and she manages everybody and she sorts the entire thing out and it's just so amazingly well done she conquers the flaws in her own character and i still think it is one of the best examples of a modern fairy tale that really leans on that low low fantasy soft magic fairy tale feel but has a really good look at human nature and says, actually, yeah, this, is, absolutely. this is kind of the best way. I'm going to have to reread it because I remember so little about it. I think it's one of those ones that you will enjoy as a child. I certainly did. And then more of it will catch you as a teenager. And then if you read it as an adult with an analytical eye, you'll be like, okay, that was really fucking clever. <laughs> yeah. Well done. <laughs> Round of applause. <laughs> I've seen so many bad reviews of this and people say it's dated. And yes, some of the language is dated and the presence of a Christian God is probably quite dated for a children's book. Mm. But I have to say that the way Gouge has put in um, God, it's not God as in you must go to church and be bored, etc. Yeah. Or you must believe in Christianity only. It's God as in this is us taking a day to celebrate each other as people and the good in each other as people and that's where you really find god with the, by looking for the good in each yeah. other and i think that point has gone over a lot of people's heads possibly because the i mean i don't think the language is inaccessible but possibly because some of the stuff is a little bit it's very tongue-in-cheek as in sort of like men don't like women to be curious yeah. kind of thing but I don't think she was actually saying that. I think she was saying, yes, you might get told off for this, but actually what you should be doing is being more subtle about it, not giving it up entirely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely going to have to recheck it out. Um, just to mention about, uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but Elizabeth Gouge's life, she too had a you know, an unsuitable love affair when she was younger and we don't know exactly what happened, but she wasn't able to marry him. And again, she remained single for the rest of her life. She was such an amazingly prolific writer. She wrote, you know, books, around 30 books and they were massively popular and she's still got kind of a cult following now and almost all of them lean into this idea of, yeah, you know, being good to each other. And there's something quite wholesome about the books as well. You know, if you want a rest from all the sort of like, oh, isn't humanity awful kind of stuff, definitely read some of her books because oh, they're great. Um, but the bit, the bit that really no. struck me... Sorry, I'll get to my point, I promise. I know I've rambled. Um, her fa she was very close to her father, who sort of encouraged her literary pretensions or whatever, um, by saying you really do write quite well and then almost taking the compliment back by saying you make a little knowledge go a long way <laughs> <laughs> this was when she was this was when she was in her late teens sort of 1920 because originally she wanted to write screenplays and when she tried to get that 
not screenplays, plays, when she tried to get them published, the publisher told her to go away and write a book. So she did that instead. Um, but when her father, sort of 20 years later, he had a bad fall and he was mm-hmm. very, very ill afterwards for about two weeks. And he was just confused and wandering in his wit- wits and clearly in a lot of pain. And they said, there's no point you staying by him. He doesn't know who anyone is. But Elizabeth refused and she stayed by his side all the way up until the end and was rewarded when he sort of came back to himself a few minutes before he died by saying, dearest, it's loving that matters. And that's something that really stuck with mm-hmm. her and comes out, I believe, in every single yeah. one of her books. That's an incredibly beautiful... I, but also incredibly sad. <laughs> but... um, so anyway, a quick look at the themes. Obviously, there is the do not be deceived by appearances and you don't need to like people, but you do need to look for the best in them, which I think is a reasonably good piece of advice. Yeah, I would agree in that sometimes people are not their best, but actually, if you try and see the best in them, you you might actually yes, get more out of it. It's got that in common with the Enchanted yeah. April. <laughs> um, there's also this, for a fairy tale that is clearly a fairy tale for children, um, it's really about middle-aged love and second chances. Mm. The fact that, yes, you can you can make a wrong step, you can have an argument. I mean, what they argue about is a pot of sun and pink geraniums, Love Day and Benjamin. And he gets so angry that she's brought these salmon pink geraniums out of her tower room and put them all around the, the parlour and that when she's having a little tea party. And he picks them up and throws them which out of the window. Which is a bit excessive. Which is a bit excessive. But the problem is that Sir Benjamin's mother, who had died just a year before, had not liked Love Day, had not wanted Sir Benjamin to marry her, and had made the best of it when he said he was going to because he loved her. But she had been very hard to Love Day when Love Day was growing up, because Love right. Day had been an orphan ward at Merryweather Manor as well. And she wouldn't let her wear pink ribbon in her hair. She wouldn't let her wear anything pink, even though Love Day loved pink. And she hated the salmon pink geraniums, which were all that Love Day brought from her Cornish home when her fa- her family died. So Love you know the, these these stupid salmon pink geraniums took on this like mythic proportion of emotional weight where on the one hand love day saying this is all that's left of my original family and on sir benjamin's side yeah. it's like you're disrespecting my mother by putting things that she hates around her parlor <laughs> and she's barely cold in the grave yeah so like all I think small arguments uh, it was actually tapping into something that's actually bigger. very profound because there is <laughs> Because how, how, you know, it is about that whole sort of um, yeah balancing the things that you love, particularly when they didn't love each other. Wow, that's not easy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really not. Um, and again, they, they could have reconciled early on, but both of them were too proud to really properly say sorry. Yeah. And then obviously Love Day put the question completely out to pasture by marrying someone else um, and Benjamin went right that's it then the woman I loved has done this obviously all women are the devil I'm going to be a bachelor for my entire life Which is a bit extreme. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit much my dude <laughs> it is but it does seem to be the way some people react <laughs> so, yeah. 
So again, middle-aged love, second chances, reconciliation. I don't think reconciliation gets, you know, both between Love Day and Benjamin and between Miss Heliotrope and the old parson and between, um, you know, the men from the dark woods and the Merryweathers mm. themselves. As a theme, I don't think reconciliation gets enough scope in a lot of stories, certainly not in modern fairy tales. And it's so incredibly important, the whole sort of, like, you know what, I had a point, but you had a point too, and I am sorry that we quarrelled over it. And maybe spending hundreds of years hating each other and, you know, getting into fights might not be the most productive use yeah. of everybody's time. <laughs> It's uh, sorry. It kind of makes me laugh a tiny bit because it is um, it 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 kind of is the opposite of what the sort of the original fairy tales sort of have, which is this sense of you are either right or you are wrong, and there is no between. Um, you know, you are either you are either yeah. with God, <laughs> and always entirely right, um, or you are not, and <laughs> yeah. you are therefore wrong. Um, and it's not it's saying that at all it's the total opposite which is that actually two people can have a point um, and both be right and also both be wrong and that perhaps actually it's not about saying therefore that one person is wrong or that one person made a mistake or that it was all a misunderstanding but that actually perhaps now that emotions have been felt, perhaps now that that's kind of done and finished, we can reconcile later on, get on with our lives. We've we've been allowed to feel what we, we deserve to feel, and now we don't need to feel it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the final two themes, there's obviously the whole becoming the best version of yourself possible, which means recognising your flaws and working to ameliorate them. Yeah. Um, the other one is that even if you don't like people, you are part of humanity. And while you don't have to sacrifice everything you love in, in life or whatever, we should all be striving to try and be of service to each other as well. I mean, don't be somebody who only takes and never gives anything back, I think, is, is the yeah. way that she meet, she means it. I mean, Elizabeth Gouge was a well-known recluse she she liked her she had one she had a female companion later in life who lived with her called jesse um and they had dogs and they loved their dogs and they had a very deep friendship with each other but they lived way way out sort of in a house a cottage out in the middle of nowhere and they would go into town and elizabeth gouge liked to help in the community and stuff but she didn't actually like people she did, however, recognise the value in being of service to others and giving of herself with what talent she had. Yeah. And I think there's some value in yeah. that as well. I, I kind of resonate with that because I'm like, no. humanity as a whole, do I like you? Not really all that much. Do I recognise that I can help with things? Yes. And I know that I'll be better if I do that. And I, why not make the world you know, yeah. 1% better if I possibly can rather than yeah, doing nothing, I guess. Okay, the last one. Uh, from one unicorn to another, um, you'll be unsurprised to discover that Jules has snuck in uh, Peter S. Beagle's <laughs> The Last Unicorn. I say snuck in, like it, it doesn't belong here. It obviously does, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
do you know what? I just about managed to resist putting Labyrinth down, and that's mostly yeah, because I think we it's doing an episode on Labyrinth. Because <laughs> when I started writing notes on that, I was like, actually, there's enough here, probably for two episodes, but let's try and restrict it to one. So, um, yeah, The Last Unicorn was published in 1968, and it is the most beautifully written and yet strangely yes. cynical fairy tale of human nature imaginable. And it is really gorgeous, lush language that really puts you in this sort of fantasy landscape. But at the same time, it's it's not all happy, sort of, there's the obvious good, there's the obvious bad. The unicorn herself no. is not necessarily an entirely good character because um, she's removed she's from also everything when she's a unicorn. <laughs> yes. Yes. she. I mean, she's immortal, so she doesn't really see things through a mortal lens until much later. Anyway, it begins with the unicorn curiously watching two huntsmen in her forest where spring always lingers, where it never grows cold with winter. When the older huntsman says they will find no game because the unicorn is protecting them, and then goes on to say that she is the last of her kind, the unicorn is very troubled. She has never seen another unicorn, but she was certain there were others yeah. like her in the world. So basically, this sets her off on a quest into the world at large to find out what has happened mm. to the rest of her kind. Um, we don't need to like go over every single little convolution of the plot, but there are there are points that are really worth mentioning. Um, the first is that nobody else is able to see the unicorn for what she is initially. Everyone who sees her yes. assumes she is a white mare. Um, she searches everywhere and she cannot find other unicorns. Eventually, she's so tired, she falls asleep, and uh, a group of, uh, basically a travelling show, the the first time she gets recognised as a unicorn is by Mommy Fortuna, mm -hmm. who is the caravan leader of this travelling show, and she captures the unicorn through trickery and adds her to the menagerie in the travelling show. And when the unicorn looks around at all the other animals, she sees that all of them have been enchanted to look like something that they're not. So an old lion with a twist, you know, an old sort of mangy lion looks like a manticore and an ape with a twisted foot looks like a, a minotaur, etc. various other things. And people are coming and gawking at these animals. And then people come to look at her and they're, they're crying because they're seeing a unicorn. And it turns out that they can't yeah. see her as a unicorn without Mummy Fortuna's help. She's put a false horn on her. To be able to see so it, yeah. So they are looking at a real unicorn, yeah. but they had to put a false horn on a real unicorn for people to see what was right in front of them. And that's a that's a, a big theme in it. Um, it's not a completely wasted <laughs> adventure, basically, because she meets up with Schmendrick, the magician, <laughs> who's, who's basically a childhood crush of mine, absolutely. <laughs> Who is? I know you wouldn't expect Schmendrick to be a childhood crush, and yet somehow <laughs> he's just—he's not a very good magician. Magic will not do what he wants it to do, and he doesn't have much much confidence. Um, but he says he recognizes the unicorn for what she is, false horn or not, and he says he'll help her. Um, and it turns out as they go on through their adventures that a king in a far off kingdom has used a, a mythical ghostly red bull to gather up all the unicorns so he can have them for himself and has driven them into the sea. And that's where all the unicorns are now. They come in on the tide and they go out on the tide, but they're too frightened to 
make landfall on the shore because of the Red Bull. Yeah. Um, and I suppose one final point that does need to be made is that in order to get into King Haggard's castle in the first place, uh, Schmendrick, in a, in a rare moment of magical competence, turns the unicorn into a human woman, which causes all kinds of problems, and it's very, very upsetting. <laughs> um, but they do manage to get into the castle. Uh, later, the unicorn um, has to change back, and uh, this is after she's fallen in love with Haggard's adopted son. Um, so she's a unicorn who's been changed fundamentally inside. There's part of her that will always be mortal and will always love Leah, this this son. Um, but she fights the Red Bull, drives it into the sea, and the unicorns are freed. Um, I've really condensed that. But the point is, I just wanted to talk about the plot before we got onto the themes, because the themes are so yeah. incredibly rich and dense in this story. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack. The biggest, one of the biggest ones, I think, is identity and the fact that very few people are seen for who they really are. Um, and this is made obvious by, you know, a genuine mythical creature, um, a miraculous creature wandering around the real world and people seeing a white mare. Yeah. Because people have lost the ability to see unicorns. And partly the reason they've lost this ability to see unicorns is because a miser has gathered up all the unicorns because he wants to have all of them for himself. Yeah. Um, but the whole I, the whole identity issue, who am I? Am I the last of my kind? I mean, can you imagine if you were the last human? Yeah. And you'd never, you'd, you'd never seen another human and suddenly it's kind of, hang on, what am I? Am I some sort of natural freak? Or yeah. Are there others like me? It's that sort of dislocation. And it, there's probably a reason why an awful lot of um, queer people have read this and really seen themselves reflected in the unicorn struggles. Yes. <laughs> am I the only one? Am I the only bisexual in the village? <laughs> <laughs> the only bisexual in the village. The village bisexual. <laughs> um, there's also... The, the whole nihilism, greed, selfishness and emptiness thing, I think what makes Haggard such a terrifying uh, antagonist, not really even an active villain, is the fact that he's empty. He's a happiness miser. Nothing in yeah. his life has made him happy because he has never had anything within him or he's never grown anything within him yeah. he's t in order to give to other people and therefore find happiness in small moments the way most people do. The only thing that's ever made him happy is the sight of unicorns. And his reaction to that is not, I've had the most miraculous experience. I saw two unicorns beside a yeah. lake. It's, I must have all of them. I must take them away from the rest of the world and they must belong only to me. And even that doesn't fill his no. emptiness. I... <sighs> yeah, you can definitely understand why that would speak to a lot of people in this I... day and age. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, it doesn't have to be unicorns. It can be money, oil, power, yeah. control, can't it? There are people out there with varying levels of emptiness who are gathering things to themselves, not necessarily because they even want them, just because they want to take them away from other people. And if that sounds a bit strongly worded, I'm not talking yeah. about everyone, but that when you see someone like that, they are a I think they are a genuine yes. sort of <laughs> problem. And the, and the, that's, I think, the big thing about it, is that it 
which again I think means that the, the story resonates, is that the little, uh, the la- sorry, not the little unicorn, the last unicorn also points out the fact that there doesn't need to be many people like that. All it really takes is one. All it takes is, is a couple of yeah. greedy people to... One very, very selfish yeah, or person. Yeah, one very, very selfish person. Uh, because I'm thinking, you know, there are really, there are two main, well, there are three antagonists, as it were. Um, there's the woman who runs the fairground, obviously. Um, yeah. Who basically has, I think is in a position where she's basically said, well, the world has not been kind to me. Why should I be kind to the world? It's every man for himself. You know, I feel like that's yeah. the kind of the position that she's in. And subsequently, um, that's how she's ended up treating the creatures around her. Because there is this weird glee when the the watchman call it the one the one cr- other creature which is real escapes. Yeah, the harpy, and and kills the harpy. her. Is that she kind of welcomes it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, that's my immortality. As long as she lives, she will always remember that I was the person who captured her. Yeah. And, you know, she's, in that way, she's kind of almost, she's a natural sort of antagonist, if that makes sense. She is the cruelty of the world personified. Not cruel for the sake of cruelty, but cruelty yeah. for the uh, because that is the way of the world. And that is the way of her world. Uh, whereas the king is yeah. cruelty because of a lack of consideration, which is interesting, you know. Yeah, nothing will stand in his way from him getting what yeah. he wants, and he doesn't care who he's taking it from. He's that. I think that is the the real terror of Haggard is he has never had any. He's, he's yeah. empty of love. He tried, and so that's why he well, has a son, a stepson, because he, he thought, well, let's see if this brings me joy. And then it didn't. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd never had a son and I've never been happy, so I tried adopting him, but it didn't make me happy. He's expecting happiness to be something that comes from outside himself. Yeah. Rather than thinking, how can I make other people happy? And realising that actually... Through through acts of love and kindness and um, service to others, that is how you can gain happiness yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult thing if you're in the midst of, of a, a deep depression or something, but if you're feeling a bit low, going and doing something nice for someone else will actually help you yeah. out of it. Odd thing, that. <laughs> um, yeah. Odd thing that, but we are wired that way. Um, love in all its inconvenient forms. Well, it's pretty inconvenient for um, the unicorn as Lady Malthia to fall in love with Leah and then get turned back into a unicorn because they can never be together. Yeah. They're, they're very incompatible. You know, completely different species. One of them is an immortal being. The other one's a human man. Yeah, uh, which definitely puts a dampener on any kind of relationship, being and an immortal it, you know, being. <laughs> it, it is very sad, but... As he himself says, I mean, she she begs not to be turned back into a unicorn. She says, I won't love you the same way when I'm a unicorn. And he said, well, you know, I've become a hero for your sake. And I understand, as all heroes do, that while unicorns can go unrescued for a long time, they cannot remain 
imprisoned forever. So you have to make the non-selfish choice. So even he's saying the whole thing is about selfishness versus selflessness. And it's like, you need to be selfless because I do love you, but the important thing is that everybody else gets some inkling that unicorns are in the world yeah. again by releasing them. Um, and the final thing, which is very much a satirical sort of tongue-in-cheek thing that Beagle puts in there, is when you set up bad habits in the sense of, and I don't mean bad habits as in you occasionally pick your nose, <laughs> or bad habits as in you forget to polish your shoes, or you're a bit of a slob, genuine bad habits in how you treat other people um where you you look at people uh unkindly and you make a habit of it to the point where you cannot see them any other way um or you you think i'll wait until i properly fall in love to change my behavior towards someone otherwise i'll just treat whoever my dalliance of the time is any way i like and i'll break the heart and i'll leave them and i won't care about it you know, true love will change my behaviour. That's not actually what will happen. What will happen is you will become hardened in your bad habit, in your habit of how you treat someone else, and it won't matter. You need to be, change needs to come from within, to, you know, sound like a psychologist. It, it cannot come from a selection yeah. pressure outside yourself. <laughs> Jesus, sorry. It's just making me laugh. <laughs> sorry. So, again, uh, a, a cynical but ultimately yes. uplifting, if quite poignant, fairy tale. One which is happy ending. <laughs> Some people would say no. <laughs> well, unicorns are in the world again. No sadness lives within me while that joy, and yet now I know regret. So it's the thing, isn't it, where you've gone on the hero's journey or she's gone on the hero's journey and she has been fundamentally changed yeah. and she she will suffer that change her, for the rest of her immortal existence. So it's kind of a happy ending because the unicorns are free now and Haggard's been defeated. But the cost was, yeah, you know, her own, her own experience of mortal love, I suppose. Really not. <laughs> Alan will not watch that film with me. No, he won't. I suggested it once and he said, yeah, but is it really the last unicorn? And I'm like, do you want me to spoilify it for you? He's like, I'm not watching something about an immortal creature that is the last of its kind. It's not going to go anywhere good. And he absolutely will not watch it with me. Like it has a happy-ish ending. So I don't like, care. Don't happy-ish. Happy-ish. Oh, I'm not falling for that, love. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to summarise, and I'm sorry we've overrun a little, but there are many more modern fairy tales. Um, obviously, we couldn't get to them all. Um, and older original tales, because as I've said, we can make a case for persuasion and pride and prejudice yeah. at least being fairy tales. Um, but stories that lean into the fairy tale form have an enduring power over us, whether that's as a cautionary tale or as a balm for the soul, which, strangely yeah, enough, is what some fairy agree. tales were supposed to be. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the last thing I can say is that um, perhaps in times like this, is when we need that balm for the soul more than ever before. Um, and that balm for the soul is not just for kids. Yeah. So, um, 
it is time for us to wrap things up on that sort of slightly harrowing note. Um, <laughs> it wasn't meant to be harrowing, and yet somehow it did kind of start, come off as a tiny yeah. bit, a, a little bit wistful. Um, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, and this week, Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes, I received an advance review copy of Darkwater Daughter by H.M. Long, which I believe is now out. Um, I had an audio arc, and it's a really good audiobook, so if you prefer audiobooks, you can safely go okay. with this one. I have to admit, when I initially got the arc, I thought, is this going to be like heavily roman rom romance-leaning romanticy? It's not like that at all. It is um, a it's a really imaginative... Uh, brilliantly built world um, where the main character Mary Firth mm -hmm. is a storm singer and basically she you know the storm singers are not quite human they're human but they've got this extra ability whereby they can sing the seas quiet so that if you happen to have a sailing ship then and a storm singer on board then you know you can imagine how useful mm -hmm. they would be if you're like a merchant vessel or maybe if you're a pirate ship and you want to get away from yes. things um, because the seas are treacherous. However, she's always been told to keep it quiet because her mother was also a storm singer and the way storm singers are treated are that, yeah. that people will enslave them and literally chain them to the mast and force them to sail like that. Um, so that, you know, it's not shying away from the whole, yes, someone's got this unique ability that could make you a lot of money. Are you going to pay them fairly? Hmm, probably not. No. And I live in a world where I don't have to. <laughs> uh, the, Yay. The other side of the equation is a pirate chaser. So someone who is trying to catch some of the worst offenders on the high seas, as it were. Mm -hmm. And... He and, you know, his name's Samuel. Samuel and Mary keep sort of meeting and parting and meeting again. And they're, they're not entirely on the same side at the beginning of the book or even halfway through. Um, but as it unravels, you find out all th these things about Mary's father and about um, basically glystics, which are kind of tree spirits that get carved, you know, that their trees get carved into figureheads and it kind of strengthens and blesses the entire ship. So it brings that lore into it as well. It's really imaginative. There's loads of action. It's quite funny. It's quite dark in places as well. Um, but it's just a great sort of high seas adventure type story. I really enjoyed it. And okay. I recommend it. That, that sounds actually really interesting. Thank you for that one. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. Mm -hmm.